Hi there, I'm Nihal and you're listening to the Rescue Tales podcast, the show dedicated to helping you settle your adopted rescue dog. In this episode, I invited behaviorist Angie Cook back to the podcast to continue the conversation about reactivity. We chat about why some dogs become reactive or sensitive to other dogs and what to do about it. Angie explains that our dogs often give us signals that they are uncomfortable well before they get anywhere near an approaching dog. So we talk about how to read those signals and respond to them to avoid the reaction in the first place. We also chat about some of the behaviors that dogs do naturally that we as dog parents would prefer they don't, like rolling in dirt, barking or eating poop. Angie explains how suppressing a dog's natural behaviors can, in some cases, lead to reactivity. So we need to find a balance between managing behaviors and trying to stop them altogether. Angie is a certified dog behaviorist and a certified family dog mediator with the Dog Door Behavior Center in North Carolina. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode. So hi, Angie, and welcome back to the Rescue Tales podcast. Thank you for having me again. Well, I mean, I enjoyed our first conversation and learned so much. I just then, you know, like I was saying before recorded, I reached out to my listeners and I said, tell me your questions. Uh, it's <laughs> one amazing that I think I need to interview again. So I've got a bunch of questions for you for this chat. But before we get into that, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. My name is Angie Cook and I am a certified dog behavior consultant and a certified family dog mediator here in Asheville, North Carolina in the United States. And I work for the Dog Door Behavior Services and or the Dog Door Behavior Center, excuse me. And we, we focus, uh, we specialize primarily in aggression and anxiety. And, but we also, you know, do puppy training and, and just do the whole, the whole gamut. Our uh, focus is through the lens of, of ethology and, and specifically applied ethology, which is the, the study of animals in captivity. And so we, yeah, we, we approach how we work with dogs kind of in a different way than some, than some trainers do just in that we're looking uh, at all of the aspects of the dog's lives, their, what they've learned, their environment, their genetics, and what is going on in their, in their internal self. And my background is, was in, in sheltering. I was a director of operations for a small rescue for about four or five years. And then the large rescue that operated the contract for the municipal shelter for another four or five years. And then I got into behavior consulting. So that's what I do. Fantastic. Now, uh, there's a lot that we want to get through today, but one of the topics that we discussed on the last podcast, uh, which I will link to in the show notes of this one, is reactivity. If you could just maybe recap what you told me in that previous episode about Mm -hmm. maybe specifically, what are the signs that we as dog parents or dog guardians should be looking out for ahead of that moment? where the, mm-hmm. where the reaction, that strong reaction occurs. Right. Right. So gosh, there's like, there's just so much with reactivity to unpack because there, there are so many different reasons for reactivity and catalysts and, and there are different levels of reactivity. It's just a very, very complex thing, but the crux of reactivity for most dogs is that the approach of the other dog 
is causing anxiety is causing mm. a is or or is causing frustration is causing an emotional response we'll say okay and so when when the dogs are are when you're walking your dog in the park and another dog is approaching. All dogs have what's called a flight zone. And well, actually a, a lot of mammals have it. Horses have it uh, as well. Cows have it. It's really, it's basically the perimeter around that animal that feels we have it. What am I talking about? Personal space <laughs> is the perimeter around that being that feels basically essentially feels safe for them. And once mm -hmm. we sort of encroach upon that perimeter, that's when emotion starts to boil and the fight or flight instinct is, is, is triggered. A lot of things happen once that, once that occurs. And for, for dogs, the, the flight zone is typically around seven feet, but some dogs have, especially reactive dogs have a, a much broader flight zone. And so, you know, theirs can be, you know, like 15 feet, 20, 50, you know, it really depends. So they see the dog coming and depending on what their flight zone is, you start to see these little indicator cues mm -hmm. where, so first they see the dog. Okay. I see it. There it is. And it feels safe enough away for me right now. Okay. Now the dog is getting closer and closer. So I might start, so the dog might start, um, you know, maybe licking their lips or turning their head in the opposite direction to mm. cue to the other dog, hey, I don't want any conflict here. Okay. And as the dog keeps approaching, because we're walking in a park and the human beings are just, you know, chatting with each other, drinking their coffee, and they're not paying any attention to the fact that their dogs are throwing all these cues. We just keep walking forward. Our dogs become more and more emotional slash, you know, activated. And so now in order to cope, they might do something called a displacement cue or signal, which is, you know, maybe going off of the path to go sniff something like, okay, let me just, let me just pretend like nothing's happening here and I'm going to go sniff or I'm going to stop and I'm going to scratch my ear or, you know, I'm going to, some dogs get so nervous. Like they start doing little things like spinning in circles, you know, mm -hmm. like there are, there are all these things that, that happen, or I'm going to start initiating my stop cues and the stop signals for dogs are growling, barking and, and, and all of those things. So we start to see a lot of these little micro signals shaking off, yawning, lookaways, the displacement signals, we start to see those a few steps before that growling or barking mm. starts to happen. And so when we see that, we want to, we want to listen to that because those are the moments where we can stop and say, oh, you're feeling uncomfortable. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well here, let me, let me take you by my side and kind of take you off here off the path. So we can, you know, watch this dog walk by, or we can turn around or we can do all sorts of other things in order to help you dog feel comfortable in the situation before, before the reactivity starts, before the dog gets into the other dog gets into your dog's flight zone. And then they feel like they have to be lunging and barking. Mm. Okay. That makes perfect sense. The, 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 uh, the displacement cues. Yes. Dis uh, uh, so why do dogs do, are they trying to send us, a, are they communicating with us through those cues or are they? No, so so the think in dog? terms, okay. Think in terms of you're on an elevator and there's like eight people in there. You don't know. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want anybody to talk to you. What do you do? Okay. You yeah. the phone and you start looking at your phone, you know? Okay. That's a displacement signal. It's okay. a, 
I don't want to interact with you or I'm getting anxious and I don't know what to do. You mm-hmm. know, some, some displacement signals can be, it's just like, it can be, a, it can be a soothing thing. It can be a, a sort of distracting thing. It can be, sometimes the signals can be communication to the other dog, but most of the time it's just the dog trying to cope with that particular thing. And so in the, in terms of that, what I find with people who have a really kind of rigid, you need to heal mentality mm-hmm. where, you know, their dog is sort of like, okay, a dog is approaching and I might have mild reactivity, but the dog is still approaching. It would be more beneficial for me possibly to actually be able to do this little displacement thing and go off and sniff and get some space and, and, and have this moment than to be stuck in this rigid heel where I have to keep approaching, um, approaching this dog. Um, so, you know, as long as the displacement signals are, or the displacement things are not, you know, maladaptive where it's just sort of like, I mean, some dogs, like I actually had a, a rescue foster one time that was so anxious. She had this, she had this, this displacement signal of licking the entire perimeter of my house. I mean, she did a lovely job cleaning it up, but she was so like, she didn't like, she didn't know how to interact with, with us and with our, with my, with my, my dogs. So she was just like, I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to lick this, this, that, you know, and like literally the entire perimeter of the house. And that's maladaptive, you know, Mm -hmm. because she got kind of stuck on that channel where just sort of like looking at your phone or going off to like, all right, I'm just going to go over here yeah. and, you know, take a, take a couple deep breaths and cope here. That's a coping um, mechanism, which is okay. good. Okay. So just in terms of like really practical takeaways here, mm-hmm. if I have a dog who reacts on, you know, when I'm, when it's on leash to other dogs on a walk, I should be paying more attention mm-hmm. to some of those cues ahead of as soon as I spot that dog I need to be paying attention to my dog and what I should be doing as far as I understand from what you've said is give the dog space so you know either Mm -hmm. cross the road or just give it the space as soon as you notice those cues do not force it to heal and walk head on towards that other dog if it if it's if it's showing you those signs right so I guess then my other question is what are the things that you should not be doing if you are someone who has a dog who is highly sensitive to other dogs when it's on the leash and tends to react. So what I what what I like to kind of share with people is I like to I like to really really emphasize the fact that that the dog most likely is having a very acute emotional response and typically it is a an, an emotion of anxiety, nervousness or frustration, okay? And so it is not that your dog is being bad. It is not that your dog is being dominant. It is not that your dog is, you know, super Cujo aggressive and wants to kill all dogs. Again, there is a percentage of, there are a percentage of dogs that they, you know, based on their genetics and life experiences, that might be actually what's going on. They just hate other dogs and they're reactive that way. But that's also an emotional response is I don't like other dogs. I actually would prefer to not be walked in the park ever. I'm perfectly fine just running around, you know, in our yard, happy as a lark to never be on another walk again. 
I actually just saw this ad for a very prestigious trainer who basically his tagline <laughs> is your dog's behavior is a reflection on you. So that's our culture. That's what we're dealing with right now. You know, this, this trainer that everybody watches and everybody listens to, like, that's what he's telling people is your dog's behavior is a reflection on you. And so culturally, when we have a dog that's lunging and barking at the other end of a leash, we're embarrassed. We want it to stop. We want all these things to happen. And we have a hard time sort of tapping into um, what's actually going on for our dog. And we just want our dog to be able to go on a stink and walk in the park, you know? And so a lot of times people will start to use corrective means to try to, to fix this. So one of the things that you really don't want to do with the reactive dog is use positive punishment when they're being reactive. And the reason for that and positive punishment can look like, you know, leash jerks or, you know, getting buzzed with a shock collar, or, you know, it can look like, uh, you, you can spankings. It can look like a lot of different things, but with positive punishment, we don't have the, we don't have control over what the dog is associating the punishment with. So is the dog associating the punishment with their behavior? Maybe, and maybe it gets them to stop it. Or is the dog associating the punishment with the dog they're looking at while they're receiving the punishment, which is going to actually get the, which is actually going to increase their aversive emotional response to the dog approaching. So I would say like the number one thing that you don't want to do is punish the behavior. Okay. We, we want to see, we want to, to, to try to see it as a, wow, you're really, really struggling here. Let me see what I can do to help you not struggle like this. And so distance is one of the main things. And then people are like, well, I'm going to have to cross the street, you know, a hundred yards every time I see another dog for the rest of my life. No, you know, seek out a behavior consultant or, you know, a certified trainer and they can help they can help your dog and you understand exactly what we're talking about here, understand the triggers, understand the behaviors beforehand and understand what to do when you see those things so that you can hopefully help to affect a, a, a change in your dog's emotional response when they see other dogs approaching. Yeah. Yeah. Just on that note, really quickly, do, do you offer online programs and consults or is it oh, all yes. one person? Okay, super. Because mm-hmm. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll link to your website just so listeners can get in touch if, if, if they want to. One really important thing here to mention is that it isn't a one size fits all solution no. or approach with any no. of this because every dog is so individual. Yeah. There's only so much advice that we can give on this podcast that's generic enough. And I think when it yes. comes to the specifics of individual dogs I think with especially with things like reactivity do seek professional advice for sure I I think there's definitely I I will do a podcast on how to podcast on on how to choose the right professional because I think part Mm -hmm. of the issue is that we are in an industry that's not regulated it's not and anyone can just claim to be a trainer and I, I suppose my advice to anyone listening would be you know ask them how they would approach like how they would approach supporting yes. your dog to get through this and if the if the beginning of the conversation is around you know stuff that we're talking about like what's the dog's perspective you know let's understand why it's doing this what's its background you know and all of this stuff versus 
corrective, you know, measures that gives you an indication of whether they're Mm -hmm. the right person or not. But yeah. Yeah. And I would also encourage people and I encourage my clients with this all the time. If, if someone, if if any professional ever asks you to do something that doesn't feel comfortable to you, Mm -hmm. like even though they're a professional, there's always somebody out there that is going to have a perspective and, and a point of view that does feel, that does feel good to you. You know, I have so many clients come to me and they say, yeah, we were doing this and we were doing this method and it, it just, it didn't feel like it was, it didn't feel right. And, you know, but like, they're the professional, you know, and I, and, and we talk about how, how the field isn't regulated and even in fields that are regulated, like, people have different ideas of what works and some, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not here to argue that at all. I'm just here to say, if you are working with a, a, a person on an, anything and it doesn't feel good to you, it doesn't feel, you don't like what, what it's doing to your dog or, or you don't want to do the things they're asking you to do to your dog, find somebody else. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. I think it's actually, that takes me to my next question really, because there's, there's a lovely lady that I meet at the dog park who has a, a lovely dog named Tony. And Tony's not a big fan of male dogs that are not that are intact. He just, he's highly, highly sensitive to them. The, the other day I met her and then, and then a dog was in the park and she didn't realize that it was a male dog. And then suddenly Tony just, you know, you could hear them like he just went at the dog and you could see her. She was just so stressed out about it. And she's like, I had a funny feeling when I walked in. I said, listen to your gut every time because I've had that with my dog. When I get that feeling, I'm like, "Mm, something's not off. Don't go in the dog park. And I wouldn't listen to myself. And I would go in and something would happen. I'd be like, why did I not listen to myself? Yeah. But um, so that's absolutely 100%. If if you have a gut feeling about something, just listen to that. Um, But just on that note, why are some dogs like Tony very sensitive and reactive to dogs that are intact male dogs are intact it really like that's there are so many there's just there's so many answers or there's Mm. so many possible answers to that question you know sometimes it can come from a place of just you know insecurity feeling vulnerable especially if tony is is neutered you know sometimes it can come from you know tony's uh, tony's age and where, where he is and his, you know, and his just development, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why, mm-hmm. why that, you know, like there, there could be a threat or, you know, an association with, you know, that particular musk that comes from an mm. unaltered dog that, I mean, there, again, there's just so many different reasons why Tony could be having that, that particular experience. And the, and, you know, like, and again, like, that's what we're, that's kind of what we do here at the dog door is we try to, through interview and through evaluating the dogs, we try to figure out, okay, so why, why, why is this happening for you? Because in some cases there actually are solutions to that, Mm. you know, and in others, it's just like, all right, Tony, we're just going to keep you away from the, we're going to keep you away from the intact males, you know, like, but we, we, we dive deep into what's going on to see if we can answer those questions. We can put that puzzle together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I really feel that often we don't spend enough time on the why. No. 
because we just we just want to get straight to solve this problem solve this yes. problem whereas yes. actually understanding where the pro- why the problem's happening in the first place is yeah. so so important i remember the first time i worked with with a behaviorist and they spent so, we probably spent two out of three hours just talking like them yeah. asking me questions talking and I remember I was getting really impatient and it's like when are we gonna when are we gonna do the training part when are we gonna start fixing this problem and then it dawned on me we were fixing the problem yeah <laughs> but I think it's what we expect out of we yes. expect the treats to come out and then then the training to begin that's what we kind of expect but I think I, yeah I just wanted to reinforce that point that taking the time to explore the why is hugely hugely important it, it absolutely 100% is. And, and really we're hopefully there's, there's a paradigm shift coming in our industry for uh, behavior consultants and trainers to really start looking uh, more mm. at the why, not only for, you know, to, to ensure that the, you know, what we're doing to work with the dog is, is conducive to, to their just general betterment, to their general well-being, but also what we have found is finding the why for the clients changes their entire perspective mm-hmm. of the behavior and what's happening for the dog. And sometimes when we look at, you know, in, in my industry, when we just look at a dog and we say, okay, here's the laundry list of the behaviors that's going on, that's wrong. You need to fix it. And we're not looking at why, first of all, there are many times where I don't, we can't even make a dent in the behavior because there might be a why that the, there's a medical, there's an underlying medical condition as Mm. to why this dog is doing this, or there is something happening in the environment that's making Mm. this dog do this. And so we're never going to affect change in any behavior if we're not, if we're not, if we're not altering those particular variables or, Mm. or, or, or at least are working on those. And, you know, again, it just gives the, it gives, it helps to give the client a a better perspective of, of exactly what's happening. And there are also things where, you know, in that laundry list of things that are going on, there are behaviors that are just really natural for a dog Mm. that we need to let them do. And we're doing a disservice when we don't explain to our clients why they're doing them and why it's important that they're doing them. Like what? Like for instance, we have, so puppies exploring things with their mouths. Okay. Especially out in nature. We have many clients, especially who have, you know, retriever gun type dogs who are extremely orally focused that on a walk, the owner will spend hours removing items from, from the dog's mouth, Mm. leaves, pine cones, little sticks, dirt, all this stuff. And those are just all kind of natural things for a puppy to pick up and put in their mouth Mm. and consuming those things every once in a while. Isn't, isn't really, it's not a big deal. And what we have actually found with a lot of our clients that are, that are so hyper-focused on making sure that their puppy isn't picking things up on their walks is that the puppy actually becomes extremely frustrated and reactive to, to the client because for, for retriever type dogs, picking things up, especially puppies, picking things up and exploring them with their mouths is 
in innate inherent behavior mm. that they that they just they need to they need to have the outlet to do and so I mean, no, do we want them picking up cigarette butts and turkey sandwiches and dirty diapers and all the other, you know, fun things that people leave on the road? No, but picking up leaves and, you know, little sticks and all those things, like that's fine. And actually what we find is the more kind of micromanaging people are with those puppies, the more they're actually doing it. So if you just let it be, the puppy outgrows that phase mm-hmm. of their, of their life and their development, and they move on to the next phase seamlessly. But if we're making a huge deal out of something that they might have in their mouth, then we're, we're attaching value to it. And the puppy just keeps doing it. So yeah, like having that natural at digging, digging in the yard yeah. for, you know, for terriers and, you know, dachshunds and, you know, a lot of dogs, like I encourage all of my clients who their dogs are digging. All right. You need to set up a dig pit for your dog in your mm-hmm. yard. You need to set up a place that's appropriate for your dog to be digging because this is an, an appropriate natural behavior that your dog needs an outlet for. Otherwise you're just playing whack-a-mole. You're just, you're, we're, we're frustrating them. Okay. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the questions that I did want to ask you and another one that's popped into mind, I'll start with the one that's just popped into mind. So my dog Rose, like many dogs, absolutely loves rolling in the stinkiest smelliest stuff she can find Mm -hmm. (laughs) luckily but just because where we go for our walks it's often it's often sand or mud or maybe it's sand mixed with some pee sometimes Uh (laughs) but you can see like she does this thing with her head where she does a sniff and then she head kind of goes to the side I'm like she's going in for it yep I love watching her do it, right? Mm-hmm. And and I and I'm not I'm not saying that every dog parent should let their dog roll in crap if they want to. I mean, I just give her a shower when she comes back. Sometimes it's gross, but I just see she just gets so much joy from it. I'm like, yes, this just feels like such a natural behavior. Yes. Um. So equally, I understand that some you know that you might not want your dog to be rolling in poo. Where is the is there a balance then between like okay. I have no problem if she wants to roll in mud or sand or whatever, but I prefer that she'd not roll in poo because Absolutely. even if you give her a shower, that's just not going to come out easily or she's going to stink and, you know, and the house is going to smell. So how do you, how do you teach a dog that, you know, sometimes it's okay to roll in sand or mud, but it's not okay to roll in poo because I feel like it's sending a bit of a contradictory message. Is there a way around that? Yes, there is. There is, you know, it's, it's really kind of, you know, if, if, if we're going to have our dogs in situations where they are just kind of running around and exploring things, you know, every once in a while, they're going to come across the poo and they're going to roll in it and it's going to be great fun. And then they go home and they get a shower and, and, and that's, and that's over. If it becomes a sort of like, you know, normal everyday thing where, I mean, you're just cleaning your dog every single time you're, you're going by the poo, then, you know, then you have to start kind of doing some, some management around Mm. that where it's like, no, you can't like, you can't do that. And then if there is a place where, you know, so if there's a place, if there's two spots in the park, there's the spot where there's the sand and the mud. And it's like, I love rolling around here. 
cool, I'll take you over here and you can do that. So I'm gonna give you an outlet for what you wanna do, but I don't want you doing this. So I'm gonna actually gonna shorten the leash here. We're gonna walk by the poo and you're not gonna, you're not gonna roll in that. Mm. It's just kind of the same thing with, with barking, like a, a barking behavior, you know? So dogs are dogs and dogs bark. You know, and so do I want my dogs uh, barking at every leaf that falls from the tree while I'm sitting in my house, you know, like just trying to relax? No, because that's maladaptive behavior for them. They're mm-hmm. hypervigilant and they're just worrying about all these things that are happening. But if my dog wants to bark at people, you know, at the neighbors, walk, you know, walking their dogs past the house, you know, every once in a while. Yep, sure. I'm going to let her do that because she's a dog. She's an Australian shepherd. She's got this, you know, idea that she needs to be doing this. So I'm going to let her bark in those, in those situations. If she starts doing it and it's maladaptive and she's barking all the time at everything and, you know, nobody can walk by and she's just, you know, like I start to see anxiety. Then we start talking about that, but I don't want to totally curb like I got a dog because I wanted a dog, you know, like, and, and like, I don't want this just like furry mute robot, you know, I want a dog. I want to, I want, I want an animal that has a fun sense of humor and does stuff that just like blows my mind. Like, really? Like, yeah, that was a choice you're going to make. Cool. And that, you know, barks everyone, you know, like I want, I want her to be able to be a dog. You know, I want her to come in with a, you know, the dirty nose and it's like, what have you been doing? You know, like, that's what I, that's what I, I, I got that. I got that for, for, I, I, you know, I, I, I invited this animal into my home because I love those things uh, about dogs. And I realized that some people don't, and some people, you know, have sort of different lifestyles than I do. And so there are certain things that they want to mitigate against, but there are things that we really need to do. Like if you live in an apartment and your dog can't bark, like we got to find a place where your dog can bark. You know, mm-hmm. if your dog wants to bark, we got it. If your dog wants to dig, we got to find a way that your dog can dig. If your dog wants, you know, like, but yes, if your dog wants to roll in things, find things that are acceptable for your dog to roll in. Okay. Okay, cool. No, that, that's, that's, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because I agree with you. You can't expect a dog to just stop a behavior completely. That is just them being a dog. And right. also really interesting. The point you make about frustration oh, well you made that point around uh, puppies you know mm-hmm. retriever type dogs if you don't let them pick things up the frustration starts to build up is that also true of what we we're just talking about yes. if you okay so if you stop a dog from just being a dog every yes. time it barks or rolls or in stuff whatever you're telling it off or you're punishing it in some sort of way, frustration builds up and that can lead to some of the behaviors right. like the reactivity and so forth Yes. Yes. And so that's why the why and, and sort of dissecting all these things is so important. Like asking the three hours of questions, because that's where you find out like, Oh yeah. You know, we live in this apartment and I've got neighbors above beside and below me and, you know, she can't bark at all. They will complain. We will get kicked out, you know, and she, when she plays, she loves to bark. And so I can't let her play in the house. And then, and we're talking about a reactive dog, you know? And so like, all of a sudden, you know, we're looking at this dog who's not getting their natural needs met in, in the confines of their own environment. And so when they're, when they're out in the real world, it's coming out sideways, yeah. you know, like, yeah. so it might, it might just be 
for this particular reactivity case, we got to get your dog to a place where they can play and bark, you Mm -hmm. know, like that, that just, that has to happen because that is the crux of the frustration that's happening here or part of the frustration that's happening when they see, you know, another dog coming. The devil is in the details. The minutia is just, yes, it does feel like, like you're just talking ad nauseum and it would be great to just dive into what's been going on. But again, if it is just sort of a general enrichment thing that's happening here, and this is all that we need to change. And this is what we need to, this is what we need to work on here. Not, and, and, you know, because we've built up this history of your dog, you know, barking because they're frustrated other dogs, we need to work with that. But this is the core of what we need to work on because mm-hmm. then we'll be working on this for months and years. Cause it's never going to get better. Cause you're not working on this. Yeah. 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 That, that makes a lot of sense. So one of my other questions that quite a few of my listeners, when I reached out to them and said, what are you struggling with? And we talked about this before we started recording is they said, my dog eats poo. How do I stop it eating poo? <laughs> We've talked about poo a lot in this episode, yes. but yes. you were the telling me before we started recording that there are many different reasons that yeah. people talk about as to why it happens, but there's no real, you know, empirical evidence as, you know, to support any of the views, but maybe maybe entertain us with with some of the theories that are thrown around as to why and if and if there is and if there is something that people can do to maybe encourage their dogs not to eat poo if it is becoming a big issue you know for my luckily my dog doesn't eat poo my mom's dog loves cat poo as soon as the cat's going to the lips she'll be like yeah right in there Uh, (laughs) so I can see why it's why it can be troubling for some people. So just help us understand why and what people can can potentially do to to manage that. Okay, so some of the theories are that there's a a uh, nutritional deficiency in the dog. There's a lot of there's a lot of lore around that. And again, it's to my knowledge, none of this has been empirically proven to be true. So there, you know, there are people that will recommend supplements and things like that to, uh, to help with, you know, to, to increase their nutritional absorption and therefore eliminate their eating poo. If they're eating their own poo, there's actually a supplement that the vet can give that supposedly makes their poop taste bad and the dogs don't want to eat it. Eh, you know, like, that maybe there's a small percentage of dogs that won't eat it after they're, after they take the supplement, most of them still do. Cat poo is an extremely exciting thing. You know, other dogs poo is also really, really fun for, for the dogs to eat. There are, you know, one, one theory as far as that goes um, is, you know, dogs have a, a second nasal organ on the roof of their mouth. And so the vomeral, na- the vomeral nasal organ. And so if they really, really want to dissect a, a scent, they will take something into their, they'll lick something or take something into their mouth. So it could actually be them just exploring, you know, like, really, really scrolling that dog's Facebook page, uh, going back in their history and seeing, you know, seeing what, what's been, what's been going on with them. Other theory is it just tastes good. It's a delicacy that they really like another theory. And this is actually one that I really, um, you know, I see a lot and it's sort of the same thing with, you know, with the retrievers taking things out of their mouths. If we attach value to something like, no, don't do that. 
or the second the dog poops, you're picking their poop up immediately. We're attaching value to their poo. And mm-hmm. so it becomes something where they're like, well, I should probably keep an eye on this. I have a very, very steady eye on, on my poo and other dogs poo, because it seems to be something very, very important to the humans. And, you know, what's important to us really, really matters to them. So uh, a lot of times when I see, when I, when I talk with clients and they're like, you know, they get the poo and I open their mouths and I try to get it out of their mouth and it's disgusting. And, you know, or like the second, like the poop's not even out of their behind and I'm picking it up with the bag, you know, like all of those things contribute to the dog thinking, all right, well, this is something that I need, especially also with the cat poop, the, with the cat poop, you know, every time the dog's in the litter box, you're like, get out of there. That's disgusting. And you're trying to get it out of their mouths. They're like, okay, I can't wait to do that again. Cause not only was it tasty, but the humans seem to think it's really, you know, it's a big deal. So, so yeah, like there are so many different reasons, like why a dog might be eating poop. But one of the, the main things I would say is yes, it's disgusting. Don't make a big deal out of it. And what you want to do is manage as much as you can their access to the poo, you know? So if, you know, when with my cats and my dog with the litter box, like I have to put the litter box up where the dogs can't get it. So the Mm. cats can get to it, but the dogs can't get to it. You know, otherwise there's no way I'm going to keep my Chawini out of, out of the litter box. It's just, is way too delicious for her. You know, when you're out walking with your dog and, you know, you, if you see poo, keep them away from it. If you catch them eating it, just grit your teeth and keep walking and, you know, act like, act like nothing's going on. If it's happening in your own backyard after the dog has gone to the bathroom and, you know, while they're either while they're playing or while they're in their house, just make sure that you are doing a really good job of picking up the poop. Yeah. Like you want to like management is really, is really the big, the big piece. And I'd say definitely just not making a huge deal out of it. So you're inadvertently reinforcing it. I mean, that's just basic. That's the crux of it. Like you are, you are reinforcing them eating poop every time you freak out about it. Okay. Would, would, and I've literally just thought this, maybe it's just a ridiculous idea, but would rewarding them if they didn't try and eat the poo to reinforce that behavior of ignoring the poo or saying leave it and they do leave yeah, it and then you, giving them a you, treat yeah if you if, if they have a if they have a solid leave it and you tell them to leave it and they do and you and they and you can reward them for 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 not doing it you can you can definitely do that with the caveat of if there is ninja poo laying somewhere and they get the poo just let it be so like, don't try to teach, don't try to get drop it. Just there, like, that's just one you lost. So if you see okay. the poo and they're going for the poo and you can say, leave it. Great job. You left the poo. Good. Let's keep going. But if they get it in their mouth, don't make a big deal out of it. It's, your, it's, okay. it's a loss. So don't even ask them to drop it. Cause sometimes when we do, sometimes like, especially with a really valuable thing like that, um, doing like, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it or having the treat and, you know, they drop it, then they get the treat. Like that's just reinforcing, well, I'll just get poo. So I, I get, get to, to say those words and I get treats, you know, like it's just, just ignoring it is going to be the best policy. If like, if this is something that, that you are like seriously working on, you know, 
teaching a solid leave it. So hopefully they, you know, they, they do just start to kind of let it go because they, they want to be reinforced for it. And then if they get it, just one dog, zero, zero mom, zero dad and keep moving. (laughs) Fair enough. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. I'm conscious that we have about seven minutes left. Um, And one of the topics that I think, you know, really does deserve a lot more time, but maybe we can touch on it very briefly because it does link back to that reactivity piece in a way, is someone who has adopted a, a rescue dog who has some sort of special ability, you know, mm-hmm. whether they've lost a limb or are completely or partially blind or completely or partially deaf those dogs often have emotional needs that might be different than a dog that, you know, doesn't have those, those, those challenges. So I suppose my question is from the dog's perspective, if you have a dog like that, cause there is a dog I actually know who's, who's blind and we only, he's, he's he lost an eye and he's very, very reactive to specific breeds of dogs, not all dogs, but to certain dogs Mm-hmm. And I often look at him and I think that must just be really jarring to kind of just suddenly see something appear because you don't have that full v- field of vision. Mm-hmm. So just maybe help us understand that like, from the dog's perspective, what's going on that might lead a dog with some sort of, you know, disability like that to, to become reactive. So, I mean, the, the primary reasoning for, for that is, you know, okay. So if it's a dog, if it's a dog that already had reactivity prior to that, you know, the, the loss of some sort of either a limb or, you know, a primary sense is definitely going to make that, that reactivity even, even more acute. But if a dog did not have reactivity prior to that, you know, both, so vulnerability is basically playing a role in, in all of these things. So, you know, dogs understand that when they are working at any deficit, whether they're older or smaller or in pain or, you know, three-legged instead of four, so their balance is off or they have, you know, decreased vision or whatever, that they, that they're basically walking around with a target on their back. Okay. Because in, you know, from a, from an ethological standpoint in the wild, you know, other dogs kind of call that those dogs out of the, out of the order. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like you are kind of a burden, like in, 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 in this culture, in this dog culture, you're a burden on resources. And so you must go. And so there is just this sort of in innate instinctual sense that other dogs are, are even an even greater threat mm. to that dog now that they, you know, have this particular thing going on with them. And so you see that a lot with dogs as they, as they get older, you know, they might become more reactive and it could be again, because they're grumpy and in pain, but you know, it also could be because they, they know they have a target on, Mm. on on their back or they become ill, like they get cancer and they know they're sick, but we don't know they're sick. And all of a sudden, like, 
they're acting this way, they're acting reactive. And, and so again, that's one of those things is like, let's get to the why of this, yes. you know, like what, what's causing, what's causing mm. this in your dog. And you see actually a lot of inner dog aggression start to occur when things like that happen, because, mm. you know, the dog in that, in that social group is feeling extremely vulnerable because of that whole, like, you got to leave because you're, you are a, a drain on resources mentality, but that is a huge reason why the dog is, is, is feeling might be more reactive because again, mm -hmm. reactivity in many instances is the dog giving a stop cue. The barking and the growling is the dog saying, you need to stop moving. You need to stop advancing toward me. Please quit mm -hmm. advancing towards me. I don't want anything um, to happen because the dog doesn't really want a fight. They, you know, the, the, with the economy of behavior, like dogs know they, they really shouldn't be getting into to true aggression. So mm -hmm. they're giving all of these stop cues to try to mitigate that um, from happening. And again, what we spoke about earlier on in the podcast, like the dog just keeps coming because we're just walking along because we're on a walk in the park and that's what's going to happen creates even greater emotion and reactivity in the dog. So, so yeah, like the, the vulnerability piece is, is huge when it comes to those. And so building safety is the most important part of any training quote unquote, that you want to do. Cause I don't really mm -hmm. think of building safety as training. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's, I'm here for you. I'm advocating for you. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to have this sort of unspoken contract where I don't let other dogs approach you and I keep you at a distance and I do certain things with my body in relationship to you so that, you know, 150%, I got your back. And, and so, yeah, the safety piece is key for, really any dog that comes out of a shelter like that okay. is, is creating that for them. I mean, I feel like that could be an hour long discussion yes. in its own yes. right. And I'm conscious yeah. that you have an appointment with a client yes. in a couple of minutes. Yes. Angie, I really cannot thank you enough for coming back to the podcast again. I learned yeah, so much. Thank you so much. Really insightful. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. 